Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Please welcome to the stage Beth Moore and Dr. Russell Moore. Hello, this is Russell Moore. You're listening to the first episode of The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by the Christianity Today Public Theology Project. And every week, we will explore conversations and questions from a Christian perspective. And this is the first of the conversations with my friend Beth Moore, who has come in here to Nashville, Tennessee, where we have a live audience um, from Houston or from wherever in the world you have been this week uh, here, and I'm really, really uh, grateful. Uh, Beth Moore needs no uh, introduction, one of the most uh, visible Christian leaders in the world today, Um, and somebody who means a lot to me. She and I walked through a a similar path uh, together. One of the things, though, Beth, that I think about just about every day is the person on Instagram who said, my daughter always thought that you were Beth Moore's dad. Oh, yes. Well, and I said, "Dad." Okay. So I, I, that was my favorite one. I have to say, but I do feel like it is important since I feel like this is an opportunity for us to say some things we've needed to say, and so I, I do want to go ahead and publicly own that. The rumor is true, I am Russell Moore's mother. And I brought a couple of pictures from our photo album to show oh, you if you'll uh, look to the screen. That, that's baby Russell. This is little boy Russell in my backyard. Here, here's Russell on his first day of kindergarten. We've got sports Russell. And we've got his driver's license, the first day he got his license, and lastly, his wedding day. So I just thought, I, I know this is personal, but I did want to bring a personal touch to this evening. Oh, my <laughs> word. If I were your dad, I would say, young lady, you're grounded. <laughs> I want to tell you, I could not be happier to be here with you. And I am so honored that I would get to be the first guest on this launch. So I'm pretty happy about it. Thank you. Well, it's been quite a few years. And, um, you know, when you think about the topic that we're going to be talking about today, uh, lessons in leaving and staying, been a lot in the news about leaving, yes. not just with you and me, but with a lot of other mm-hmm. people in a lot of different contexts. But I'm actually more interested in the staying. And one of the things that I think you and I share, and we've been talking about a lot 
over the last few years. Sometimes people will say, oh, you grew up in a Southern Baptist church. That must have been so stifling and oppressive and awful and whatever if they have a certain vision of Southern Baptist. And I will always say, I loved it. Yes. It was, it was a magnificent place to encounter Jesus and to grow up in a way that um, when I see those little circular cookies with the hole in the middle that you have with the Kool-Aid at vacation. High C. Yeah. Always orange high C. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I could not possibly have loved it more. And I've said many, many times, Russell, that my home was my unsafe place. My church was my safe place. That was my harbor. That was the place that I really, if there was any area of my life where I got to thrive, that was it. And, I mean, I just can't begin to say how much of my identity uh, was in it and how much I loved it. Sometimes you, you fight to fight for, you, so, because you love something so much. So I agree with you. I, those are some of the best memories of my entire childhood right there in the church walls. When, when you were first sort of feeling a call to ministry, and there weren't at the time a lot of highly visible women's Bible oh, no. teachers, I wouldn't assume. And so was your congregation, did they help work you through that process of thinking what God was going to do in your life, or did that happen kind of apart Absolutely. from Absolutely. I had the joy and privilege that I could not have even recognized at the time because what you have is what you're accustomed to. You know no other world than that. But I, I had an ex- experience where every single church I was ever part of, and so it's all through my childhood, then we moved to Houston. I became uh, very involved in that church. And then when we were married, soon after our marriage, we planted our lives at First Baptist in Houston. And so as a young woman, and I already had a sense of my calling at that point, but I had no idea what it would be. But from the first moments of just stepping into that next place of opportunity, I got nothing but support. And my pastor for, for close to 30 years was John Bazzano out of First Baptist Church of Houston. And he was just the kind that wanted to see the men and women and, and the, the students in his congregation. He wanted to see them come in to their gifts and to be able to exercise those. And I've said so many times, I did not end up out front in spite of my pastor. My pastor dragged me out there. And so uh, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to think back on now is that just so much support. I wouldn't have known any other, I wouldn't have known any other world. I was not aware that there was another way to approach it until I was outside of that smaller world that I was sort of cocooned in. So, yeah. so you, you and I both ended up in a maelstrom um, during the... Trump years, yes. which I think a lot of people uh, did for, for various reasons. And people disagree on Mr. Trump and on all of that, and that's fine. We have a Trump administration official here tonight. And uh, so people disagree on those sorts of issues. But I think almost everybody has seen relationships broken yes. um, in, in ways that really didn't happen in previous times in American life. There's, there seems to be something different happening in this moment. So when you got in the middle of that 
whirlwind that was taking place when you made some comments, I think after the Access Hollywood yes. uh, tape, about women and the experience of women uh, with, with um, men. What was that like for you? One of the reasons why I felt so strongly about the topic that we are getting to speak to in this podcast is because I truly believe that across the board, really across the globe, we are all leaving a life that was familiar to us. I think just because of, of just global disasters and so much unrest, uh, the pandemic that we thought we were coming out of and it swings back at us. And we are all in a situation where life looks so different than it did. And so my life, it felt like changed overnight, but it was really in that same season that so many of ours did. And I'll remember it forever because I had been serving for the previous four days in Navajo Nation in uh, Arizona and been with uh, Native American women. And I had heard every story you can imagine just what their lives had been like and how the Lord had grabbed hold of them and helped them put lives back together when they'd been through abuse and all sorts of things that they had endured. And I immediately get on the airplane to fly home and there's the newspaper. And I am in a total state of shock. And I wanna say something because you mentioned that a moment ago about Trump, and I I pray this is not an inappropriate thing to say, and if it is, it's a wonderful thing that you can cut it out for the podcast. (laughs) But I I want you to understand something. It's, It's a good opportunity for me to say this to a group. I expected Donald Trump to be Donald Trump. That was not a shock to me. I didn't expect us to be us. That's, that's what threw me. And in, in that moment when there wasn't a backlash, but there was instead out of the very world, and I need someone to understand, not only the world that I come from and with which I am most familiar, but my peers, my peer group. These were people my age and right around my age that I had known or known of for years and when there was no backlash, but instead just this championing of of this whole thing. And please understand, I was alive and well and an adult during the Bill Clinton years. So I had heard all the other side of this and suddenly everything was turned completely upside down. And as a woman who comes from a background of abuse, I cannot begin to tell you what it is like to hear someone say something about being able to just grab onto someone without permission or consent and that that is then, shoulders are shrugged over it. And I've said over and over again, there is a very big difference because people said again and again, that there has been sexual immorality rampant in politics for how many generations and how many centuries? Yes, but there is a difference between sexual immorality and sexual criminality. And when, when we are bordering on assault and abuse, and that, I, I have no 
language to put around my shock. I, I had no place to put it. I had no place to put it. And then, I mean, when I say the backlash was swift, I, we could not have been ready. There's no preparation for what we then were swept into. It truly was a maelstrom. And when you said that, I thought, for me, really, maelstrom, maelstrom, <laughs> really is the key word uh, to what happened next. But I was just like, no, this is what, this, this is what we believe. What I felt like, because I understood the conundrum. I'm, I'm pro-life. I understood the conundrum, mm -hmm. but it was not approached publicly as its major public witness as a conundrum, right. but as, oh, you know how people will talk, just locker room talk. That, are, you, are you kidding me? And it, it was the beginning of, best way I know how to explain it, it was like a flashlight was held on something one thing, and then that, it was like that the edges of that light just kept expanding, and it was, uh, it was a, a whirlwind that I cannot explain. Something I still don't know quite how to define, but it was uh, very, very traumatic. Yeah, and and things would happen so fast. I remember uh, getting up uh, one morning and I, I didn't have my phone. And then when I went to look at my phone, I had about 15 messages of people saying, so sorry about that. And I said, about Lots what? And well, that you're a nasty person with no heart and a terrible representative of American evangelicalism. What are you talking about? No, there's, there's nothing like it. You, you cannot imagine, if you have not been there, you cannot imagine what it is like to wake up, and if you set your alarm on your phone, like, like most of us do, pick up your phone, and you have got 40 texts, and all like, man, I, I'm so sorry. I, all the time, all the time, I hear from people, two, within the last three days, man, I am so sorry people hate you so much. I it's know. Like, there is nothing about that that I find helpful. Does anybody, <laughs> absolutely nothing about that that I find the least bit helpful. But I, or, I, or, and I get this a lot, um, I know that everybody hates you, but I really like you. I really you. do, yeah. I just don't, I had a big fight with somebody today right? over you. It will be that kind of thing. But I also want to say this, I was called to women's ministry. And um, what I've said over and over again, when I was asked about my reaction to it, what would you expect out of someone who lives their whole life serving women? I don't know what kind of servant I would be to women if I did not get in there and fight for them. And every now and then, you know, a woman would say to me, would be very critical about it. And, you know, I would think to myself, yeah, I'm gonna fight for you whether you wanna fight for yourself or not. But uh, I just, I can't think how a woman in my position would have reacted any other way. A hundred times out of a hundred. I'd have had this. I might have said it differently, but a hundred times out of a hundred, I would have reacted very, very dramatically to that. Yeah.
You know, one of the things that took me about three days to work up the courage to do was to tell my dad that I thought God was calling me into ministry back when he was, because my dad was a pastor's son, grew up in a Southern Baptist parsonage right next to the church, and had seen a lot. And I knew he would be supportive and happy of anything that I did except Christian ministry. And I went and I told him, I felt like I was telling him I'd been in jail or something, you know. uh, And he said, well, I'll never say this again, because I'm going to support you from this point on, but I wish you wouldn't because I saw my dad get really hurt, and I don't want you to be. And I've thought about that a lot over the years because I think seeing church conflict is something that almost everybody uh, is either has experienced or is going to experience at some time. And it's really difficult to sort of sort through your own feelings uh, about that. I mean, it really is. There's a sense of a feeling of exile, sometimes of, of shame. I remember there were many times I would say to you, am I crazy? Am I the one that's crazy? Over and over. Uh, and, Same. And also, because when you and I started talking, when I was thinking about what God would have me to do next, you were the first one I called. And as I'm thinking that through, One of the things that became clear to me is that in my world, most people were supportive, most people were affirming, most people were encouraging. I could have won the conflict that, you know, needed to be fought. But I realized I would have to have a conflict, and I didn't want to be the kind of person I would be on the other side of that. And I think a lot of people experience that when they're going through a situation, maybe over something small, maybe over something really big in a church. And one of the things they try to work through, and I get this question a lot from people, how do I know when I should just Mm -hmm. say to myself, you know, I can just live with this. Absolutely. And when do I know it's time to leave? Yes. That's a hard question. It's it's a very hard question, but... It's extremely relevant, especially to uh, people who are evangelicals, and I'm going to tell you why. What, for those of us who have a background, especially like ours, raised in the church, raised in the Southern Baptist Church, and it was everything that we knew, and we were raised on the Great Commission, I would have been able to say the Great Commission to you word for word by the time I was three or four years old. And if you think, especially if you compare the end of Matthew to Genesis chapter 12 with, with Abram, I mean, our, our, our verb is go, go, go. So if you, I always love the thought that in the word gospel, it starts with go, that, that inherent in the going is the leaving, that with a people who are called to go will find themselves in situations over and over again where they're torn away from what they loved and what was home to them and find their, themselves, you know, well, I hate to say unmoored, but it's just the perfect word. <laughs> it's just the perfect word. And it, it's very unsettling, but it's that way God reserves the right to test over and over and over again uh, what kind of faith we've got. Is it in 
this people, is it in this place or is it in him? And I, he will test it over and over. And I gotta tell you, Russ, one of the things that, that I found the most unsettling, the number one thing, I had belonged all of my life. In, in our terminology where we were raised, we would say, I belong to so-and-so Baptist church. And for me, it was usually a first Baptist. In, in the cities where we moved, I mean, that was, I was so Baptist, I was a first Baptist. Does anybody <laughs> understand what I'm saying? Like, long, long time, I've, I've, I've we thought We thought first Baptist was hoity-toity high church oh, did where you? I grew yes. up, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to be that, because you know, I was kind of a country Arkansas girl, so I, I probably wanted that highbrow. So, so that sense of I belong to, and then not belonging is so disturbing. But I don't think that we can face up and really sense our longing for our true home until we've sort of come to grips with what it feels like that everything we thought we belonged to has, been, has somehow been ripped away from us. But I will say this because, Russell, you and I got this question more than any other. Um, why did you stay? Why did you stay? Why? Well, we can answer that easily, and I think we already have, because we loved it. We loved it. That's why we stayed. But then how did we know to go? You, you know, I'm always going to default to stay. I'm, I, I haven't been married 43 years because I can't kiss and make up. I, I haven't been married for 43 years because I can't work through conflict. I just, I have long-term friendships. I've I've been in a lot of um, a lot of partnerships for a very long time. I I, I don't I don't quit easy, mm-hmm. and uh, but you know when you can no longer stay, <laughs> you go. And for me, it was that that sense of God so insistent from the inside. I mean, deep in my heart, let go of it, let go. And when people would ask, you know, why did you stay as long as you did? Because I hadn't been told by the leadership of the Holy Spirit to go. I, I, still, I still wouldn't have gone uh, had I not just uh, really had that uh, strong, strong leadership of God that, that it was time and it was a must and that it was in, in his sovereign plan. So you'll, I just think he is very capable of telling you when to go. You know, you know. And when, to me, when I can no longer operate in a particular situation, I'm gonna use real spiritual language here, but I think a lot of our listeners would, would understand what I mean. In the spirit, when, when now I am reduced to, I, I can hardly even find, find a way to be godly in the situation I'm in or I'm gonna think in such negative terms, it's, it's time for me to go. I, because I wanna, just like you, I wanna please Jesus. Mm-hmm. I wanna walk with Christ, I don't want there to be a barrier between us. So uh, I think he's, he's a go God. He's very capable of go and go, and, and you don't wanna outstay him. Because I'm gonna tell you what happens. Very often, and this didn't happen to be the case in this situation for me, but because I didn't know until it was time Uh, to go, but I'm gonna tell you what happens to us often is that we will get the prompt from the Holy Spirit that we need to to make a move. 
And we'll, it, we'll know it. We'll just keep fighting it. We'll just keep saying, okay, I'm going to stay a little bit longer because I, I love it. I love it here. I love these people. I love this place. But what happens is that when we're, when we're not obedient to move when the Spirit of God says move, then it goes, because we'll be too sad. It'd be too sad to leave. And so what happens is when we overstay God's welcome in that place, then it will force a conflict because then we'll have to get mad. We'd, we'd rather be mad than sad. It's easier to leave when you're mad than when you're sad. And so mm-hmm. we'll take it into a conflict and then leave with a, with a pout. And he's going, I feel like he's up there going like, you know what, if you'd have gone when I told you to, but you were scared of crying. So you, you, didn't need, you wanted to be mad instead. Yeah, yeah, that, that is true. And, and there's a lot of second guessing of yourself. So much. As, as you know, um, there, there were so many mornings when I would text you and say, am I making a crazy decision? <laughs> and you and my wife, Maria, were the moors saying, no, this isn't crazy. Not crazy. In echo. We, we truly, we were together in partnership over that. Yes. But it was, uh, it was such a disturbing thing to leave the only place we knew... I, we must be so odd to a number of people listening because we were so immersed. I, when, and that's you know, a big word to Southern Baptists, is immersion. <laughs> when you think of Russell and I, think of us going under the water and just not coming up. <laughs> I mean, just totally immersed in this life. And both of us, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit this, and I'm going to admit it for, for Russell as well because he, he felt the same thing. It was hard for us to imagine that there was a world out there beyond it. Admit it. Yeah. It, we just, I, I don't know how to say, and our, my ministry was completely interdenominational and from the start, but I'm talking about my own personal life, my church life. It was all I had ever known, and I couldn't imagine life be. Beyond it, I absolutely couldn't imagine yeah. it. You know, I hate it when people do this to me, but I'm going to do it to you, uh, <laughs> and, and quote somebody being critical. Yes. But there was an evangelical, a lot smarter than I am, a lot more confident than I am, who said, well, you know, Beth Moore is great, but the way that she's speaking and teaching is kind of a gateway drug to feminism. So. Yes. Yes. And that, that smart and much smarter and very much more confident than me person was Russell Moore, 2006, uh, when, when I was asked about this. And I think about that often. <laughs> because this is one of the best moments of my life. <laughs> I think about that often because I remember when I was in some of the worst moments of my life and some people that I had been friends with for 20 years were kind of stepping back and saying, we're going to see what happens to him. And you were the one who was right there every day, citing scripture, walking me through this, and I realized, ah, I, I think at this time, I need a gateway drug uh, to, get through, <laughs> to get through this craziness. 
You know, the truth is that you couldn't get rid of me. You know, because I, I'm going to tell you, I cannot bear to watch people get bullied. I, it wouldn't have even mattered greatly if I had disagreed with you. I, I have something in me that I cannot bear it. I cannot bear to watch it. And especially a good man, a godly man that had guts to say what he believed and to stick with his conviction no matter what and just to get, I mean, singed like that. So it was, you know, at first it was DM where it would just be like, okay, I know this is odd that I'm, I'm reaching out to you, but I just need to know if you're okay. And our conversations were this big. It was in, it was in three words, you know, like this, just, are you okay? I think I'm okay. And then after a while, it was just really, really, uh, really praying and really, and really pressing in. It, it's a very unique thing. I, I, I mean this, even though people would try to talk me out of it. It is a very unique thing to be hated. It's a hard thing to describe. And even though we would have friends that would say, well, that's not really true, and it's not that many, that, that wasn't so. It, it was true, and it was a lot, and it was a lot. And when, I hope we represent something to some listeners in that one of the sweetest things that God has done, I hate to use that word with, I wish I could, I need to think of a better word to use in a, in a masculine sense. One, one of the kindest things that God did was just give us relationships and friendships yeah. that we never would have had. Right. Never. In a, our paths would never have crossed. Yeah. Never. It truly was just a shared fellowship in this uh, casting out of sorts. And then, you know, you can't pray for anyone very long before you love them. That's just the honest to goodness truth. And then it was just like, and then I was very maternal. It was like, you know what? I'm going to punch somebody. I'm going to punch somebody. I'm going to punch some. I might not punch him for myself, but I'll try to punch him for somebody else for sure. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Moore.
What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Well, you know, I think a lot of people have experienced that over, you know, just all of the... You turn on the television, people are screaming at each other. Everybody's got a family member that's not speaking to them yes. for some reason. Um, all these things are going on. And I think we focus a lot on the relationships that have fractured, yes. and rightly so. But one of the things that has happened is a lot of relationships uh, have formed where people really didn't know each other right. until they were in the same that's right sort of situation in the same sort of place. And I'm seeing that all over the place where people are saying, wait a minute, I was so uh, confident and so uh, clueless, yes. and yet now I see who you are. I think that's happening a lot. Oh, I, I believe it. Uh, we truly are watching in all the quaking that is going on, and I'm just thinking right now in terms of of American uh, public Christianity, what, you know, what we see from the outside. We, there's been such an earthquake, so much division, so much uh, infighting that it has actually worked to crumble some walls. It was, it's the reverse of what we thought would happen, which is that we would be more divided than ever. And, and that is true in a sense. But there is another sense, some of you, this would have been the last thing you would have expected either one of us to say in this place and in this time, but I'm going to tell you something. I am positive that God is at work. I am absolutely positive that he is. I am positive that he is doing something good right here in all the pain, right here in all the fracturing. I think what all this earth moving has done is that so many things that would have kept us all in our little, our little echo chambers. Those, those things no longer worked. Yeah. They, they started crumbling, and then we were faced with the larger uh, calamity. And now what do we do? And so I, I am not discouraged about what I see. I think only the Lord could uh, pull something beautiful out of all these ashes. And I think... He is doing it, and I think that he will do it. Yeah, you know, my, my friend David French, who's here tonight out here in the audience, uh, wrote about factional friendships where you realize after a time that what you 
thought was a friendship was just the same sort of ideas and the same That's sort true. of fight against the same enemies That's or true. whatever. Um, and, and then when that goes away, it goes away. But when there's a time of genuine vulnerability, yes. I think people can learn to know one another in a way that can take those, those sorts of walls down and can, can really help uh, the church to thrive. I'm seeing that all over the place right now. And I think that's something that in all of our bemoaning, and I'm, I'm doing a lot of bemoaning what's, what's happening with, um, I, I remember 25 years ago saying to Carl Henry when he was on campus at Southern, oh, what do you think is the future of evangelical Christianity? It's just the things look so bad. And he said, you act like evangelical Christianity is genetic. God's going to do the same thing he yes, always he does. Nobody expected anything out of Saul of Tarsus or C.S. Lewis when he was an agnostic uh, professor or Chuck Colson when he was a hatchet man. That's right. And suddenly it's turned around. I think that's exactly right. God does, does new things. But you and I both get this question a lot. And it's from usually a younger evangelical Christian who's disillusioned, has seen a lot of things, um, not just in sort of the political idolatries and so forth and division that we've seen, but also the scandal after scandal yes. after scandal with really trusted uh, leaders, uh, sexual abuse and yes. cover-ups of that. And they're really starting to get disillusioned and saying, I just want to walk away. Right, right, right. And what would you say to that person who's, I mean, I understand it, that there's a confusion sometimes between Jesus and the people who have Jesus' name. And so I understand the sort of crisis that they're in, because I was in that crisis as a 15-year-old. What do you say to that young person who's, who's just thrown when they're looking around at all this stuff and wondering, is Jesus really out there? This is probably the biggest thing that I am fighting for right now, is for people to understand that there is a very big difference between God and the people of God, mm -hmm. uh, uh, between Christ Jesus and people that identify as Christians, that he's altogether different. But one of the things I like to challenge somebody with is this, and I mean this um, compassionately and empathetically because I, I, I get where they are, but if we walk away from a person or place of faith and we also walk away from our faith, then we are faced with asking ourselves what our faith was in because the only reason we would walk away from our faith when we walk away from a people or a place is if our faith was very much rooted in that people and that place. One of the things that I've had such conviction over in the last several years is this is going to sound so elementary, and it is. It is, but I, I think somewhere along the way, we have placed our faith in Christianity rather than in Christ. And faith in Christianity will not save us. Mm -hmm. it, it will not. No. It is Christ Jesus himself. And 
I, I think that when we get thrown like this, it has to be over and over, come back to, do you know Jesus? We, we've got to, to have that, that lively, daily relationship with him. I've been asked a million times, this is probably the number one question I get asked, is how have you stood it? How have you stood it? How have you stood it? I mean, just Beth, I, I have a pastor friend, just a, a huge guy, the kind that you would think could just take anything. He said, I, I, don't, know how, I don't know how you do it. And, you know, I, I wanted to say when he said it to me the other day, because he said it to me publicly, I want to say, well, it's not that bad. And, of course, it, it really has been. It's been like a death in so many ways. But on the other hand, I have had continual consolations in Christ, and I don't know exactly how to describe all of that. I just mean a sense of his nearness on a walk. I just mean that just when you're in a lot of pain and in a lot of change, the, the word jumps off the page. You're desperate for it. You have to have it. I remember times when we would go back and forth texting because you came in, well, we, it all came at the same time, but then when there was a departure, mine was before yours. Yeah. And I, I know that you remember, because what was it like day before yesterday, that the simplest things meant everything to yeah. us. Yeah. The simplest things like, for God so loves this world, mm-hmm. we, we can't give up. We can't give up. The simplest thing, I'm crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live but Christ lives in me. Uh, I mean, the truths that we would take, you know, they would just go over our heads if we're really, really, really um, accustomed to our our Christian speak. Suddenly, everything matters. Every word, every comma, every verse is, is alive. And so, that's not to say that I had a sense of his presence and his nearness to me because I was right. I'm, I am certain that there's, listen, I say too many, I can't even get through this podcast without being wrong. <laughs> I just can't, I can't, I say too many words to be, to be right a lot. I really, I do, I do, but just because he loved me and he, you know, was like, you know, I know a lot's changing, but I, and just so you know, I didn't hear that out loud. I want to be very clear. I've never heard his voice out loud, but just that sense of he was with me. And that, we have to have him. So many people have said, you know, why didn't you quit? And I have never considered quitting. Meaning quitting the faith. Quit quit ministry. Never. That thought has never occurred to me. Because the church did not call me to ministry. Jesus did. He did. I have thought many, many times about leaving the public eye. That's very appealing to me, and I know it is to you too. But quitting serving Jesus, no. I, I, was, I surrendered at 18 because I was taken with him. And that's, that, the beauty of it is in all this upheaval, I still had him. Yeah. I still had him. And just everything. There's something stabilizing about knowing that when everything else is gone, there he is. Kingdom that cannot be shaken. Yeah. 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 You know, some people that have been through maybe difficult church experiences, one of the things that they grapple with is being able to trust 
people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, when, you, mm. when you're in a church, you have, to, you have to trust one another to form genuine community. And I've had people who've said to me, I've been in a bad situation, yes. and now I just feel like I'm always guarding myself yes. because I don't want to be hurt again. How would you counsel somebody to, to work through that to where they really can trust uh, people oh, again? I, I'd love to talk through that for a couple of minutes because as believers, as Jesus followers, we have to have continually in our mind that we want to get through this in one piece with the Lord Jesus, that we want to please him and that we want to you know, get, get through it to the other side. So we're for, in my mind, I couldn't let myself ever think this doesn't end well because that was unacceptable. I wanted, I knew it was gonna get messy, but that it had to, that the goal was that the Lord and I were gonna walk out of it, just like we walked into it, we were gonna walk to the other side of it. I have to say this because I got some fun comments when we put out the uh, word about the podcast Mm -hmm. and said, you know, how do we keep from giving way to cynicism and despair? Uh, I had somebody say to me, and I was so glad they did because I wouldn't have thought to bring it back to you. Um, he said, what if it's too late? Mm. And so I, I want to speak to that because yeah. here, here is the thing. I, I kept thinking today, and I'm sure that this is not a, an original thought because you think about the word goodbye. And I, I, thought, I thought today, you know, there are goodbyes and then there are bad buys. And my buy to the SBC was a pretty bad buy. But here's, here's the gorgeous part of it. It's not over yet. I still get to work through uh, this whole thing and it still can, a lot of healing has already come. I have oh, just a simple thing of being invited here recently to speak at a Southern Baptist church. And I said, when the invitation came, I was like, are you sure? I said, would you call them back and say, have they read the news? (laughs) (laughs) And she said, are are you serious? I said, yes. Calls them back, they go, we're aware. But just like, just healing and, and thinking that, okay, this is the way this has got to go is that there is still... I'm still in the process of that, where what's on the other side of it has got to be getting out from under. So had, have I had moments of cynicism? <laughs> oh, yes. It was part of processing it. Have I had moments of despair? I can't, I can't even put language around it. It was not only a death, but a death of a very close loved one very close. So it was that kind that you think about every single, that when you roll over in the bed, you think about it. And so I, I want to say to you, and I want to say to anyone working it, you know, just in the middle of it and thinking this is the way it's going to stay. No, no, no. That's not how it goes with the Lord Jesus. He who began a good work in you will be faithful. If we'll let him, he'll keep processing us through. And we, we even get to we can even go back, we make new friendships, we make new relationships, but we even can go back and let there be some repair in some that were fractured. And um, that, that that hard and bad goodbye could be a little bit better goodbye and a lot of healing on the other side of it and a lot of redemption on the other side of it. And so I would say, you know, set your goal where your goal is. We're getting through. 
This is not where this ends. I'm determined to get through this with Jesus, and I'm determined to live a joyful life amid some of it, but certainly on the other side. I'm determined in Jesus' name. It is my birthright in Christ, and that's got to be in view constantly. Mm-hmm. That that's that's the goal. We're gonna we're gonna get there, and believing Him every single day. You're gonna walk me there one day at a time, one yeah. day at a time. You know, you and I have talked about this before, but I remember a moment that was really clarifying to me was after there had been so many high-profile revelations of sexual abuse and sexual assault in a church context, and we saw so many people that we had respected involved in all kinds of awful things and awful things revealed about them. I uh, was talking to a group of evangelical women who were all ages, multiple denominations, multiple backgrounds, and one of the women in the room said, I sense that some of you men are really rattled by what's being revealed. You're kind of shaken by it. What we want you to know is that none of us are surprised. And every woman in the room was nodding her head. And it was a really clarifying moment for me. So take the internet debates about complementarianism, egalitarianism, and what can women do in the church, all that stuff off the table for a minute. What should men in church leadership, whether lay or clergy, do better to empower women in our congregations and to to love them? I can answer that so simply. Go to the Gospels and emulate Christ. Look at Christ in every encounter with a woman and emulate that. That is in all of it, when we take the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation and certainly from Matthew to Revelation, and we see what the point is, and Paul over and over, I'm actually a Paul freak. I, I, I definitely have a theological crush on him and have for many, many years. <laughs> and it was, and people have asked me that. They're like, how can you feel that way when he says this? Because I always, I had I'd read all of it over and over. When you read it all, instead of you're just going for your, your, your verses, you know, that are, that are speaking to this one thing, when you see the overview of what he wrote, his uh, working with women, uh, the last chapter of Romans, uh, for heaven's sake, all of those things, and see that, okay, you know that, okay, it couldn't, couldn't be this extreme, and it couldn't be this extreme, so, okay, how do we grapple uh, in with all of this? But I, I want to rewind just a moment, because this is a very, very important question. Um, what are we to do with women? And I, I'm going to tell you, I was very aware um, in, my, in my young servanthood um, of just your basic sexism. I, I, and, and accepted it because I truly believed until the autumn of 2016 that even though I found it very weird and very off-putting and like, why would you be in an elevator with me and not speak to me? Why would you be in the same automobile with me and not speak to me? Why would you not acknowledge that I'm even there? We're on the same team of speakers together. So it was, but I always thought, well, you know what? It's weird, but they, it's because of scripture. And then suddenly, 
all of that unravel, and that was part of the trauma of it. And so I, I had not been aware of flat-out misogyny until I got into the larger uh, evangelical world. That was a shock to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I began to see, and I began to see what I felt like was a hard pull where women that he'd even done, you have to understand, and I, I love to be able to tell people this because I think, they, I think they find it shocking. You've got to understand as controversial as I have been because I've, I've obviously been trying to steal someone's pulpit. Um, you need to understand that I'm telling you that 98% of my ministry has been to women. I I was called to serve women. That's what I've spent my life doing. But what, what happened when the end came for me, and this, this is really the question that you're asking. Um, I'm just taking a long way to get there. That in two, two years ago, May, I did something really, really foolish that I very, very much regret. And that is that I teased with someone on Twitter, sometimes, you know, well, I'm a smart aleck. And so, you know, I kind of got a little sassy about something and it was the late spring and, and Mother's Day was coming up and she, my friend who is a speaker said something about it. She baited me a little bit, which she would admit to and we would both get a little bit tickled over it, but I bit that bait with everything I had, and I said, shh, but I'll be speaking on Mother's Day at my church, and I'd spoken on Mother's Day at my church for years. Um, it exploded. I, I, to give you a little example, and for you to understand, for me, what is most injurious and what is less injurious is according to how personal it is. For instance, when the big deal came out where a very well-known figure in a very demeaning way said that his reaction to my name, to the name Beth Moore would be go home. I mean, I didn't even have a big reaction to it. I stayed at a three the whole time because it wasn't coming from my internal world. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? I'm not going home, but um, (laughs) you can't make me because you're not my boss. (laughs) And um, so I don't know, it didn't, but this one nearly killed me. It is the only thing in in my denomination, Russell, that has ever nearly put me in the bed and caused me to put, pull the covers up over my head. I, I'm, I'm hard to put into that state because I'm, I'm buoyant. I am, I am Tigger. I bounce back easy. But it absolutely exploded. And I got hit so hard from my internal world when I knew they knew better. And I felt like it was bearing false witness I knew that many of those pastors, there were many, many exceptions, y'all please understand that. I knew that most of those people that were spreading those rumors knew that it was not true. I had never, ever been after a pastoral position in a church, never. I had, the most I would have ever spoken in, in my church, it was when my pastor would ask me to, which I, I felt you could, you could find in the scriptures for a woman to bring 
to be asked by her pastor to bring a word to the congregation. I'd only ever done it under those circumstances. This was not someone trying to, uh, to incite women to go take over the pulpit. This, I thought, I have served your women for 35 years. You know this is not true and it's not fair. And it nearly killed me. And it, you know, people like to say to you in a situation like this, well, it was just a few. This was not a few. There was nothing that was a few about this. This was not, this was not, well, it's a loud few. No. It was like somebody blew a dog whistle and it was like attack and it was explosive and almost nonstop. And you need to understand, it was at the peak of the biggest sexual abuse scandal in the history of our denomination. And suddenly, all anyone wanted to talk about was women trying to take over the pulpit of Southern Baptist churches. To this day, I do not know one I saw again yesterday online, these are the biggest threats to the denomination, and it was listed as one. Women coming after senior pastoral, where? I need someone to turn me in a name. I need, (laughs) I'm begging someone to turn me in a name. I don't, Russ, I don't know one. Did I go too far just then? No, I don't think so. (laughs) Are you afraid I'm going to tell you to go home? Because I'm not going to do that. So that, to bring that back around, that our inability to be able to look in the face of the sexual abuse situation because we're going to defer to something that's much more palatable where we can hold our heads up and have some dignity. So let's go for this over here, women trying to take over the church. Women were not trying to, women are not trying to take over, not in that denomination. And uh, that, the Let's deal with our, our situation. Let's mourn and grieve. James says it's such an odd thing for him to say when he says grieve and mourn. Let, you know, this is not when you have joy. This is when you grieve and mourn over what is happening. And instead of doing that, we just deferred over here and let's like, women are becoming a threat to the pulpit. No, 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 no. Forgive me. The pulpit had become a threat to women, and it was terrifying. Well, I went uh, too far. No, you did not go too far. You did not go too far. I, I have one final question. I know I've gone longer, kept you longer than I planned to, but um, what would you say to a woman who's faithfully serving in an evangelical congregation about how to make the men in her congregation aware of some of the unique problems that often women face in in the pew? I just had a conversation with some really good friends of mine today about a, a woman who had gone to her pastor to talk about this very thing, and it backfired on her so badly that she has sort of become an enemy of the congregation. And this, this is not seldom. Thank goodness there are so many exceptions to what I'm telling you. Even when I say the, the, the uh, 
Initials SBC, the abbreviation, you, you've got to know that there are so many exceptions to this. I'm just talking about what we saw in a more public kind of, of uh, fashion. But here, here is where I think the key comes in. If in the local church, men and women are never serving together, then the respect is never built between the two genders. It, then it's very easy to think that women don't have anything to bring to the mix. They don't have any gifts to bring to the congregation because you're not with them anyway. anyway. And so sometimes this can come in a very pious way, and I don't even mean this in a pretentious way. I'm saying say it's very sincere that because someone does not want to be tempted. You know, I, I just can't tell you how few women I know that are really trying to seduce the men of the church. I just, I, I know that's our reputation, but I just don't know a lot of, I don't personally know a lot of women trying to seduce or reduce the men of their churches. I just don't know of a lot of it, but, but it's easy to think if, you, if everything is kept so separate. But what, what was wonderful for me, Russ, my entire adult life, in the churches where I've served, I've been on committees with my brothers in Christ. We've served on missions committees together. We've taken trip, mission trips together where, where, say, five of us were leaders on it, and it was a mix of men and women. We all greatly esteemed one another. That's the way it's got to go. And what, what I would say is if, if there is not an ear for that in, in any leadership, you may not be in the right congregation, but you don't walk away from your, your faith, but it may be that you're not in the right place. But uh, the key to it, and I say this because we would have pastors and teachers in the room, let there be a lot of opportunities, even if you don't bel believe they should be in any kind of uh, major um, leadership position, surely there's... There are committees, there are ways for men and women to serve with a mutual esteem for one another, and you can find out how many gifted women you have in your congregation. I want you to imagine what in the world church would have been like if you would have wiped out yeah. all the women Sunday school teachers, yeah. all the women on the mission field. What, what you gonna do then? Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Well, I want to say to you how thankful I am, not just for your friendship, but for your, for your courage and your example. And I'm really grateful to have had you here as the first guest on the first episode of The Russell Moore Show. And well, so thank you for doing this. Well, Russ, we'll see if there's a second episode, and that's how, <laughs> that's how we're going to know how it went. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and let a friend know about this episode. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap the cover art and you'll find the show notes and some other resources for you. And be sure to check out Christianity Today, lifting up the sages and storytellers of the global church. And if you click on the cover art, you can find a way to become a member there at Christianity Today. This is Russell Moore. You're listening to the Christianity Today Public Theology Project's very first episode of the Russell Moore Show.
The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer. Russell Moore is the executive producer and host. Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Production assistance by Cormedia. Beth Gravencourt serves as coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer. Audio mixing on today's episode by Kevin Duthu. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hudden. Christine Kolb is our administrator. If you like what you heard on today's episode, make sure you subscribe to catch the upcoming episodes. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.